You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 29, in which Daredevil fights Bullseye, Kingpin destroys the mob, and the man without fear is delivered a losing blow and yet still wins. You'll see what I mean. Welcome to another action-packed episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, now with more fiber and a sweet candy coating. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. And in case you haven't figured it out by the show's graphic on iTunes, this is not an audio jackass-style show where I do dangerous stunts. Leave that to Johnny Blaze. No, this is a show all about the Marvel superhero Daredevil, and we're right smack in the thick of a Frank Miller read-through that's going to take us through 2014, however there will be a one-week break from the Frank Miller material. Episode 35 will actually be a double episode covering both, that's right, both Daredevil and Batman crossovers to coincide with the 75th anniversary of Batman and the 50th anniversary of Daredevil, as well as the 25th anniversary of the Tim Burton Batman movie. Now, originally, I had this slated in to be a one-off special, but I changed my mind to bring it into a regular episode because of another special that I am not at liberty to discuss yet. But eagle-eyed sentinels may guess what is coming, and it might come in July. However, you are independent to assume whatever you wish. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. As for the Batman episode itself, that will be the June 29th episode, episode 35, which will put us between issues 177 and 178, which actually turned out to be a natural breaking point. It's nice to break things up a little bit now and then. So, June 29th, episode 35, Batman and Daredevil. On another note, thanks to these comics, I've kind of been making a change in my life. I began thinking a few weeks ago that for a guy who reads a lot about muscled men in tights, I've been really sedentary for a while. I work an office job, so I sit at work, and then I come home and do this show on my own time, so I sit at home as well. So, since I've been reading so much Daredevil, it's kind of inspired me to get myself back into shape a little bit. But the thing is, I look at Matt, and I think about how active and thin I was when I read these Miller comics in my, well, it'd be my late teens, again in my early 20s, right in there. And this was back when I biked five miles one way to work. So I was biking 10 miles a day, and I was in phenomenal shape. So I joined a gym, and I've been hitting the treadmill and doing a lot of cardio and working out more, and I used that time also to sort out my thoughts on the issue at hand that week, which has been working marvelously. So Daredevil has become my motivation to slim down and get my act together health-wise. But getting back in shape after, you know, a good seven years of office work and laziness, let's call it what it is, it hurts. And that first workout really knocked me in the chest. Speaking of the chest, this week's issue came out less than a week before Ronald Reagan was shot in the chest. Yeah, I know, it's an awkward segue, but hey, when you have an opening, take it. On March 30th, 1981, John Hinckley shot at President Reagan. It took six shots and a miraculous ricochet to actually hit him. Now, Hinckley had a revolver with exploding bullets standing 15 feet away from the president and managed to hit not the target five times. Now, some of that was due to the Secret Service acting extremely fast, but Hinckley only hit Reagan because the bullet bounced off the armored limo. He's kind of like the anti-bullseye, but I say that to say this. 
That is the chaotic world that this issue would have been sitting on stands for. A president recovering from an assassination attempt. The Oscars were postponed for a night. The greatest American hero changed its main character's name from Hinckley to Hanley. But Daredevil still had a guy who could shoot and a hero who was blind. And the book really reflected this real world chaos. Sure, we're not dealing with any real world government politics yet, but the 80s felt a little less safe. And so did Frank Miller's Daredevil run. Adding to that is the fact that Frank Miller got mugged twice while living in New York, which made him more than a little agitated with criminals. So after these experiences, Miller kind of wanted criminals to be treated more severely in his comics, and they are. Progressively so. It's just not Daredevil doing the mistreatment this time around. But that's jumping ahead a bit. First, let's take a look at the cover for this week's issue, Daredevil number 172, the July cover dated issue for 1981. This cover is a massive step up from last week's issue 171, I can tell you that. So looking at the cover, which is penciled by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Janssen, Daredevil battles a group of street punks who outnumber him as Bullseye leaps into the fray, about to cut the man without fear with a sword. All of this happens within the form of a large, imposing, transparent kingpin. And the text reads, the kingpin, the entire New York mob, and now Bullseye. I gotta say, this cover pops with personality. And colors are once again the key because we have this watery blue kingpin figure in the background looking very menacing. And it creates this sort of aquarium effect, which is also claustrophobic. And again shows just how ubiquitous and powerful kingpin is, which at this point I think we've gotten that point. The thing that catches my attention is the thugs look a little bit like the warriors at this stage. Like I feel like Daredevil should have some glass bottles calling them out. Warriors! The main thing that gave me uh, mixed feelings, though, was Bullseye leaping into the fray with a sword. There's a part of me that just wants to say, that's really distracting. That's a, that's a full-on sword. That's very distracting. And then I think, Bullseye with a sword. Your argument is invalid. But a very excellent cover with great lighting effects on the Kingpin, giving him a silhouette-style profile, I guess. I don't think that's the right way to describe it, but it's the best uh, word I've got right now. And speaking of that, to catch us up from last issue, we saw Daredevil infiltrate Wilson Fisk's operation to get a hold of some files that could bring down the mob syndicate of New York. Daredevil was handily knocked the F out by Kingpin and then stuffed into a water main by Turk. Meanwhile, Fisk watched his kidnapped wife, Vanessa, die when a construction site fell on her. Angry at the mob, Fisk returned to his role as the Kingpin of New York. And we'll jump into the issue and see the climax of the Kingpin's return to power right after this podcast promo break. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it, from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com
All right, and we are ready to jump into Daredevil number 172. The story is entitled Gang War. Our credits this time around, we have writer and penciler Frank Miller, inker Klaus Jansen, letterer Joseph Rosen, colorist Glennis Ween, and if you want to read along, this is reprinted in the Daredevil Gang War trade paperback, the Bring Back the Bad Guys trade paperback, Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2 trade paperback, the Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen Omnibus, and of course Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited. And the story goes thusly. Daredevil comes to in the water pipe and struggles to free himself from the ropes. The man without fear manages to push against the current and barely frees himself before blacking out. A bit winded but alive, Daredevil climbs out of the pipe into this underground sewer filled with these nearly zombie-like homeless people who simply chant money for food, money for food. A short while later at Josie's bar, Turk has a drink and then he feels a familiar red-gloved hand come down on his shoulder. Seeing the man he tried to murder, Turk runs for the window of Josie's bar and, well, Daredevil stops him by grabbing him with his billy club, so we have been denied this week. Daredevil has Turk catch him up, and ostensibly the reader, on everything that's been happening so far. This includes Vanessa's death, which Daredevil was not aware of yet. Speaking of Vanessa's death, Wilson Fisk is making life hell for the mob. He's intercepting transports, he's killing the men, and making it look like dissent is creeping into their ranks. A paranoid mob sends Bullseye to track down the Kingpin, and he does so by muscling every goon he can find, eventually learning where the Kingpin's underground lair is. And at that underground lair, Turk rushes in to tell the Kingpin about his treachery with Daredevil, and that Hornhead is after the files, and Fisk orders Lynch to move the files to another vault, and to set up an ambush at the first vault, and notes that Lynch has a terrible headache. Yes, that will be important. The files are moved underground, guarded by four of Fisk's men, including Turk, when Daredevil swings in, beats them up, and steals the files in the darkness of the tunnel. And the men are helpless to follow the fleeing DD as the borderline zombie homeless folks I mentioned swarm them, asking for money for food, money for food, money for food. Sadly, when Daredevil delivers the briefcase to the police, they are only filled with old newspapers. Another failure occurs when Bullseye arrives to deliver a bomb to Fisk's underground lair and finds that it is rigged to collapse. And collapse it does, right on top of Bullseye and the mob's men, it seems. Alright, let's take a moment to talk about the story so far. We open with this really great splash page, which is a multi-layered image. Because at the top we have this cityscape, and the big words gang war across it. Uh, there's a truck going by that simply says, starring Daredevil. A couple of homeless people hanging out, warming themselves by a trash can fire. And then that cuts away below that to Daredevil in the pipe, and there is a cutaway. So we have the full pipe, a cutaway where Daredevil's tied up, trying to figure himself out. And you know what? It took me a while to really get going on the story because I kept looking back at this page. It's a captivating image. It's a great layout, and it has this swashbuckle feel to it. Now, by the end of this issue, that swashbuckle feel is kind of diminished. Um, I'm going to get into that, of course, at the end of the issue, but I love that we began here with at least something kind of fun. Now, as far as Daredevil being underwater, this is something that, you know, I've kind of questioned a little bit, uh, whether he would have senses or what would occur under there, and they are dulled, he says. They are dulled senses, which makes sense. But, you know, I thought about it, and yeah, you would have tiny echoes, and the flow of the water uh, feel would be a little bit off, but yeah, I think it would work to some extent, and with this... The flow of the water can definitely guide Daredevil, and does, get him out of danger, thankfully, and into the underground sewer layer. Sewer layers, that's odd, don't you think? Almost turtle-like. Remember that this is the material that Eastman and Laird were looking at when they decided to create a parody called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
And of course, we have this swarm of homeless people asking for money for food, money for food, money for food, just repeating it over and over again. And it's actually kind of tragic. They're not zombies. I mean, these are regular people who, based on their circumstances, have been so downtrodden that they revert to this sort of pre-programmed idea of asking for this money for food, money for food thing. I'm sure it's commentary for what Frank Miller saw with the homeless on New York streets. Now, kind of in the same vein, Turk has this certain pre-programmed pattern to him. You know, things are bad or things are going fairly well. He goes to Josie's bar. And when he sees Daredevil, his instinct is to run for the window. People, the window is only a few feet at most away from the door. But Turk is straight running for the window. And luckily, Josie's like, no, please, Daredevil. I just had that replaced. Which is great because we get a tongue-in-cheek reference to what's been occurring where the window's been broken so many times. And I like that we at least have an acknowledgement of this pattern. It's almost become the, oh my god, they killed Kenny moment of every issue. You know what's going to happen, you just don't know how or when. And sometimes they'll throw you a curveball, like Kenny stays dead, or the window stays intact in this case. And then we are treated to a page of recap, which, I mean, we know all of this because we've been following along, but there is an odd moment with a panel showing Vanessa getting kidnapped. I just want to point out. The kidnapping happened off-panel in the actual issue. This is the first time we actually see a representation of Vanessa being kidnapped. And then when we go to the underground lair, we actually see the opening in the manhole. And the lair is later described to be at 50th and 11th. And I looked that up, of course, on Google Maps. It's a, it's a neighborhood with brownstones. And in, sure enough, in the middle of the street is a manhole. And me being me, I thought to myself, how would the kingpin, with his size, fit into a manhole, a standard manhole? Because, I mean, he's a big, imposing guy, and I realized, oh, kingpin probably has an alternate entrance. This is how the thugs would enter to throw off anybody that would be following, and that's a really odd thought process. But, surely there's another entrance, but the main entrance, the one that's given to thugs, is at 50th and 11th. So it is a real place, there is a manhole, and it makes perfect sense. And then, well, things hit the fan with Kingpin dismantling the mob. And, you know, the mob is trying to play a game that the Kingpin invented. I mean, if we were talking about a Nintendo game with this whole mob and organized crime thing in New York, yeah, they're playing a game. They might have a few cheat codes, but the Kingpin is pretty much the game genie. What we're seeing here is straight up Godfather. I mean, ransacking drug operations, people getting shot. We're starting to get a little grit on this story. And there's one thing I've been waiting to talk about, and I think now is the time. It's the tower where the mob has been meeting, which we will come to know as Fisk Tower. Sorry for the spoiler, but it's there. And we have this great shot of it as we go in to see the mob meeting. Now, in this, it's compared to Mount Olympus. It's this very great-looking Art Deco-style building. And I looked it up. So if this is Fisk Tower, where would this be? Fisk Tower is listed as being at 439 West 38th Street and at the intersection of 5th Avenue. Well, the address itself is not at that intersection, nor is there a building that would be comparable. But when I went up the road to the actual intersection of 5th Avenue and 38th Street, sure enough, there's a perfect building to fit this need. It's on the northeast side of the intersection, and really this location puts it very close to the public library, puts it close to the Empire State Building, all of this would be in view. You would also see Hell's Kitchen from there. And so I kind of place this right around 425 Fifth Avenue in the real world location. It looks like a right building, it's got a lot of office spaces. There's some retail stuff at the bottom, at the first floor. At first I was kind of put off by that, but then I got to thinking, yeah, you would want some legitimate operations there. I mean, there's got to be some legitimate money coming in for the W-2, right? Now, speaking of the meeting within that building, Bullseye is getting bored. And, you know, he's starting to realize these guys are clowns. Kingpin is just owning them. 
We also get a scene where Bullseye kills a fly in midair with a paperclip shot from a rubber band. Of course, the 2003 movie borrowed this scene with Bullseye in traction, but it's much, much cooler here because it's so relaxed, it's so nonchalant. And then Bullseye tears up the underworld brutally. We see Mickey from the Elektra issue, but I don't think that uh, Mickey survived this. Just want to let you know that. It looks pretty bad for Mickey. Now, I gotta say, in this issue, I'm seeing more and more of a refined Fleischer-style New York. A lot of the more aerial shots really make it look pristine. And I mentioned that Lynch having a headache. Uh, it's going to be really important later, so just make a note of it for a few minutes. And then Daredevil plunges the thugs into the darkness. So let's be honest, Kingpin knows what's happening. Kingpin knows that Turk went to Daredevil. Kingpin knows that Daredevil is using Turk to try to spin Kingpin. So Kingpin sends a bunch of borderline helpless thugs to protect these very important files. And of course, as was the Kingpin's plan, the thugs get overtaken. Daredevil runs away with the quote-unquote files, which turn out to be newspapers. Again, he's the game genie. Now, again, we have the homeless people, the money for food, money for food. This goes throughout this issue, and it makes me think of a writer called Chuck Palahniuk. He wrote a little book you may have heard of, or at least in movie form, called Fight Club. Palahniuk will have repetition. He calls it his Greek choir of sorts. Certain phrases that repeat throughout the book. And this seems to be happening with Miller. Not only is he using this to snowball, it's coming to a nice spot at the end of this issue. So don't forget the money for food, people. And of course, Bullseye walks into a blatant trap. And it looks like he could be toast, but clearly Bullseye will escape. What happens when he does and goes back to talk to his bosses? That's what we're going to find out right now. Bullseye, of course, survives, returns to the mob's meeting room, and he is pissed off. But guess who else shows up and just saunters in like he owns the place? The Kingpin. And the Kingpin has either swayed most of the mob bosses to his side or killed the ones that dissented, and now he's ready to accept their surrender. The remaining mob bosses remind Fisk that they have Bullseye, but Fisk bets on the fact that Bullseye will work for the winning employer. Him. Fisk bet right, and Bullseye lights the Kingpin's cigarette as he officially takes back his throne. But before getting his empire back on course, the Kingpin has one final bit of business. Kingpin calls Lynch into his office because he realized that Lynch was suffering from headaches because of the sonic device used at the construction site. And of course, Lynch was pushing Kingpin to get back in charge, so it was Lynch who actually fired the mortar that brought the building down on Vanessa. So Fisk pounds Lynch to a pulp, even with a gunshot wound from Lynch's gun, and then tells Bullseye to take out the trash in his office. Again, I mean, Kingpin just strides in, alone. He's game-genied the system to put himself back in charge, pretty much overnight. There's a commentary about how the mob has turned into a bunch of committees with subcommittees to try to make decisions. Miller's known for slipping political commentary into his work, and we're seeing a system bogged down by procedure, where Kingpin's way is more direct. Frank Miller's kind of supporting his conservative views in a very subtle way. In subtle, I mean not at all. Now, the Kingpin has chopped the organization's legs off. And it makes me think of, during the spring, when I lived in the country, uh, there would be a great fire. And basically, they would burn the fields and get rid of the old grass for the fresh grass to come through. This is what Kingpin is doing. He's burning down the old organization so he can start fresh. And it's kind of a genius ploy. And of course, not only does Bullseye defect, he allows himself to be basically a lapdog. And I'm not entirely on board with that because that was something he was complaining about a moment ago. But I think he realizes that there's more to be done with the Kingpin than, well, with the mob that's about to be over with. And Lynch, I told you this would come back to bite you. Lynch knows 
how smart, logical, and ruthless the kingpin is. But he still decided to kill the kingpin's wife. And you know what? I had to look back at the last issue, and I realized that the mortar fire scene was really ambiguous. We didn't see who was firing it. It was a silhouette. And it was really well done because it was a nice fake-out. Because I had completely forgotten about Lynch's involvement with that. It was just a really well-done twist to the story. Kind of telegraphed a little bit through hints based on that character, but I totally missed that linchpin moment. And you know what's amazing is that Lynch actually shoots the kingpin, and kingpin still keeps coming. Think about that. He just got shot, and he still smashes Lynch into something that looks like pudding. And probably the biggest standout panel in this issue, and one that just hit me right in the chin, is right after Lynch is dead. Uh, Kingpin is back in charge. And we have this single, silent panel. And again, these are all tall, thin rectangles, except for this one. This one goes across the page, so it's wide and then short. And it's just Kingpin standing in this amber light, surrounded by darkness besides that shaft of light. And he's just looking down at his handiwork. And it's lonely at the top. And it just seals, what has happened to this man who tried to walk away from all of this to be with this woman who completes him, which he even mentions, and reiterates what I've been saying, that, you know, she's the better part of him. And in a lot of ways, he has lost everything, yet he's gained everything, but, you know, a completely different setback, but he's lost everything that matters to him. This man is dead inside. It is the villain equivalent, and this is, speaking of something down the road, but this is the Kingpin's born-again moment, when he's lost everything. And then he goes back to his lonely quest for power and tells Bullseye to take out the trash. So, let's take a look at the last segment here, now that Kingpin has just been stripped bare of a soul, and see what occurs next. Daredevil is pounding the streets and finds out from a prostitute named Joni that many high-ranking mob bosses have canceled their dates for that night. Daredevil concludes that there must be a major conference in the works for the mob and makes his way to the offices in the tower. Sure enough, a major conference is in progress, and Daredevil cuts the power to the building, which means Bullseye heads to the basement where the generator is. As soon as Bullseye returns the power to the lights, Daredevil reveals himself in the basement with him, and the two have an intense fight, which ends with the two on the ground choking each other. Thankfully, Bullseye passes out first and falls unconscious as the Kingpin saunters into the basement. He makes a deal with Daredevil. The man without fear can walk away with the files and Bullseye, and the organization will take time to rebuild itself, which means there are that for a time, there will be peace and a reduction in crime. Or, Daredevil can face certain deaths by fighting back against the Kingpin's forces. Daredevil wisely chooses to take his files and bullseye and leave, somehow winning and losing at the same instant. There is an epilogue, and we see that now, deep below the streets of New York, Vanessa has survived her experience. Wounded and disoriented, Vanessa wanders through the tunnels, sleepily asking for money for food, money for food, money for food. I don't know about you, but I thought that was a heck of an issue. Now we come back into the story with Daredevil casually hanging out on a street corner waiting for, well, Joni the hooker. And he's drinking a beverage which I assume to be Orange Crush, because I assume all beverages to be Orange Crush. And he slips Joni a little bit of money to find out a little bit of information. Now he makes a leap in logic that, oh no, all the mob bosses have canceled out their hooker appointments. There must be a conference somewhere. But you know what? I'll take it. It moves the story along, right? And then we have this shot at the bottom of that page of Daredevil running across the clothesline that, well, I'm going to be honest with you, made me think of the movie The Spirit, which was, of course, written and directed by the writer of this book, Frank Miller. And you would see The Spirit doing this in live action, so now I see Gabriel Mock's movements when I see Daredevil kind of running casually across a clothesline. And yes, I'm one of those rare people that like The Spirit movie. Not as a spirit movie, but as its own separate entity, its own thing. Yes, go ahead and send your hate mail, dave at daredevilpodcast.com. 
a favorite standout moment for me and kind of the last comedic beat, uh, unintentionally, but last comedic beat for me was when the power goes out at the conference, when Kingpin's trying to get order, and Kingpin just knows it's Daredevil. It's like he has this annoying neighbor that plays their stereo late at night and keeps him awake. So the power goes out, it's darn near like Kingpin just goes, damn it, it's Daredevil again. Bullseye, go downstairs, take care of it. And then there's a whole page of Bullseye walking down the stairs. He gets spooked by a cat, of course. I mean, there's always got to be a cat that somehow gets into a nice, secure, high-rise building. But the stairs themselves are so surreal. And I guess maybe that's just kind of playing on Bullseye's internal fear and how it disorients and the darkness and how it disorients. Man, this is not a well-made building. If, if, if these are the actual depiction of the stairs. It's like an M.C. Escher piece going into the basement. And there's a part of me that's like, did he just kill that cat? Because there's a blam and then you just see a cat plummeting. I'm going to assume that that's another piece of animal abuse. And just to be honest, I don't appreciate it. There's no need to kill a cat or a dog. I wonder if Miller hates animals. Because we've seen Daredevil kick a dog at least two times. Once in Man Without Fear and once when Turk sicked his uh, fake blind uh, guide dog on him. And now this cat. That's three pieces of animal abuse against Frank Miller. Starting to not appreciate it, Frank. Starting to piss me off a little. And then Daredevil's waiting at the bottom. And he's waiting specifically until Bullseye turns on the light. This is the plan. The twist on this is that Bullseye knows. Because Bullseye's getting paranoid and waiting for the attack in the darkness. And he's like, oh, he's waiting specifically so I see him. And then Daredevil says, I want you to see me, Bullseye. Acknowledges what Bullseye's already thinking. And it makes me think of Gross Point Blank. You know, he's either in love with that guy's daughter or found a newfound respect for life. And then we have another brutal fight between these two. I mean, we're looking at three and three-fourths pages of just kicking, lunging, bullseye grabbing the billy club again. That's getting a little old, but it's intense. However, it loses a little bit of intensity just by the fact that we just recently saw a fight between these two on this same level. This is the same thing. The difference is the ending, the coup de grace, if you will. Again, we're in these tall, thin panels, so it's claustrophobic. All we see is... From the shoulders up of both of these combatants, as Daredevil's on the ground, Bullseye's on top of him, both of them have their hands around each other's throats. Folks, you cannot get more visceral, up close, and personal than having this happen this way. But luckily, Bullseye taps out, and I do think in this instance, with both of them choking each other, it really was luck that Bullseye happened to tap out first. For all the skills and senses that Matt has, and the disciplines, you can't really get over being choked. Once you're out of oxygen, well, you're pretty much screwed. And then we get that choice at the end. And you know, we've constantly seen Miller putting Daredevil in situations that are no-win choices. You know, we had him having to save Bullseye's life a few issues ago. And now, Daredevil walks away with the files that he was after. And he walks away with Bullseye, and yet he's still loses in a way. Say what you will about Spider-Man being the ultimate hard luck hero. Now there are times I will agree with that. However, in this instance, Spider-Man ain't got crap on Daredevil. And this works out really well because, yeah, we get a sort of victory, a pirate victory if you will, but Miller leaves the bullet in the chamber. So we still have Kingpin on the table and he's going to pull the trigger at some point. And this is kind of where the grit enters the picture. The dark, gritty feel because, you know, the mob's been torn down. Bullseye's off the streets. We have files to incriminate these mob bosses, and yet you feel bad for Daredevil. It's a dirty feeling that you just can't get off. And Kingpin uses a term that I really appreciated, and I think it put a nice point on what I've been trying to say with this idealism talk. Kingpin describes Daredevil as a passionate man, and I think that's perfect. That's a perfect word. I mean, Matt's idealistic, but it encompasses so much to say he's passionate because it's also compassionate. That's also 
intense. That's also driven. And it's also a willingness to go places others won't. If you're passionate about something, you know, you put some things aside. You sacrifice some things for the ultimate goal. And that is definitely Matt Murdock in a nutshell. So an ending that, yeah, we kind of walked away with what we were after. But man, what a rough way to go. And then we have this twist. We have this downer ending. And then there's going to be a silver lining. Vanessa's alive. Ah, crap. She's underground. She's a zombie. Money for food. Money for food. Come on, Frank, can we not get something to uplift us at the end? Some sort of redemption? So we end up feeling dirty at the end. And of course, we actually see the literal grit on Vanessa's face. This once stoic, clean, pristine woman who has been dragged literally underground and buried. And I think at this point, this is where, well, not just I think, I mean, this is where the book takes a different kind of turn into the darker elements. So far with this read-through, I've been championing the fact that, well, Miller's not as dark and gritty as you remember it. He's got a lot of humor, Josie's bar, Turk, and yet here we walk away with just kind of a bummed out feeling. But you know what? We feel something, and that's the important thing. We feel bad for Daredevil. We feel bad for the Kingpin for losing everything, yet he's the head of crime in New York once again. And that's kind of the hard-boiled superhero that Daredevil is going to become, and this is where the book hits a stride in that realm. Very excellent issue, very excellent set of issues, returning Kingpin to his perch in a way that is, in a word... And I hate to use this word, but it fits. Epic. But that, my dear friends, is another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. It brings us to the end. In another week, we're going to journey back into the world of Daredevil for issue 173, which involves The Gladiator, A Case of Mistaken Identity, and Bondage Clubs. So there is that next week, if you like bondage. Until then, remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one they call a man without fear. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave Weeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast.
my father, he lost his key. Dream of Ghost Rider when you hear his name. And devil fight for. 